Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. South Korea used diplomacy for a breakthrough with North Korea. We'll consider the benefits and the perils of diplomacy with the North. Successful education systems around the globe have good support systems for teachers. We'll take a comparative look at how teachers are treated. And Oxfam has lots of company. We'll discuss the sexual abuse scandal, aid agencies, and accountability. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. President Trump says he thinks North Korea is sincere about negotiations on its nuclear program. The president also says he hopes that talks will lead to a very positive result. One of the organizations that's been encouraging diplomacy with North Korea is Peace Action. Kevin Martin is the president of this country's largest grassroots peace organization. Thanks for joining us, Kevin Martin. Very good to be with you, Jerome. Tell me, um, what did you make of the South Koreans and the way they've approached this? They've uh, gone about diplomacy in a serious and sincere manner, and it looks like they're getting results. Fantastic. And I think President Moon, Moon Jae-in, uh, has been very clear that this is what he wanted to do all along. But I wonder if even he imagined that it could be this successful. He's been in office you know, for less than a year. And while ratcheting down the tensions with North Korea and moving back from the brink of war and fire and fury and all this other horrible rhetoric that was flying back between Trump and Kim Jong-un is very important. But I think there's also a broader context that President Moon is actually reclaiming South Korea's sovereignty. And I think there's a lot of pride among South Koreans and Korean Americans. And certainly a lot of that had to do with the Olympics. And the Olympic truce certainly provided an opening for a lot of this. But I think Moon is taking advantage of the rejectionism and disorganization and incompetence of the Trump administration, and he's sort of moving ahead. Having said that, Trump did do one good thing when he agreed to President Moon's uh, proposal to postpone the massive U.S.-South uh, Korea war exercises until after the Paralympics later this month. We'll see now that maybe a bargaining chip in terms of whether they further postpone or cancel those war games. How much credit do you give the toughened sanctions that the Trump administration put out there and also all the all the rhetoric, which uh, sounded pretty crazy at times, but uh, the Trump administration seemed sincere about using military force with a punch-in-the-nose strike, that kind of thing. Does that actually goose North Korea along into peace talks? You know, we'll never know. And, of course, Trump, he would take credit for the sun rising in the east if he could get away with it, right? And I don't particularly care. Uh, I do think there is a sincerity in and really a yearning for reunification or at least uh, warmed ties between North and South Korea. It's an artificially divided country as a vestige of the Cold, uh, Cold War period. And I think Koreans really feel that they're one country, one language, one people, one, you know, one history. And I think that's by far the bigger uh, impetus for this than the sanctions or, or Trump's tough, tough talk. 
Now, on the sanctions, you always have to be careful about these things because they are much more likely to hurt ordinary North Koreans than they are the behavior of the government. But if you look at, at um, uh, Kim Jong-un's, uh, I think it was a New Year's Day address, which was not widely covered in the United States, he did talk a fair bit about, well, they've sort of completed what they wanted to do on their nuclear weapons program and missile program and wanting to invest more in the economy of the country to improve the lives of the North Koreans. Now, we'll see over time if they're sincere about that, but it's entirely possible that they are. You know, when you get down to talks with the North Koreans, uh, the U.S. has talked with them many times before. In the 90s, we had this agreed framework deal. And the man who negotiated it, Robert Gallucci, you know, says we made a deal with them and they gave up the program. Then they pursued a secret program using highly enriched uraniums with the Pakistanis. And um, there's lots of people who think that all they do is break the agreements you make with them. So what's the point in talking with them? Well, that goes both ways. The United States had agreed to... Uh, provide light water nuclear reactors, which are much harder to convert into uh, nuclear weapons material, and we never delivered on those. Uh, so there's, you know, charges back and forth of who broke what agreement. But you do have to look at um, right at the end of Bill Clinton's administration, 2000, they were very close to a summit meeting and getting an agreement. And at that time, North Korea was very close to agreeing to give up its nuclear weapons program. That opportunity was missed. The George W. Bush administration came in, called them part of the axis of evil. And, you know, here we are 17 years later in a much more dangerous world situation. So I think, you know, focusing on who broke what agreement in the past needs to be sorted out. But it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is what can we do here and now and what can we verify on both sides? And I have to say this astonishing meeting just two days ago, again, I think they accomplished more in in one four-hour meeting than Trump did in a year of sanctions and fire and fury and threatening to to destroy it. from the United Nations, he threatened to totally destroy North Korea. Um, I think so much is on the table now that it would be hard even for Trump to screw it up. Well, what do you ultimately get if you get negotiations with North Korea? The, a lot of people think they'll never give up their nuclear weapons, and they, you know, everybody looks at what happened to Libya and they think North Korea has appreciated this lesson, and they're not going to give up nuclear weapons. So you get a freeze in exchange for diplomatic recognition and. Uh, you know, what, troops out of South Korea? Is that is that really a deal? Well, and also they look at Iraq, too, both Iraq and Libya, you know, two countries that do give up their nuclear weapons and then were uh, <laughs> overthrown and regime changed and turned into quagmires. They've already, you know, said that they will put uh, the possibility of getting rid of their nuclear weapons if they get security guarantees, which is a huge risk. And again, it's, you know, nothing's a done deal right now. There's there's all kinds of ways that this could go sour. But it's just astonishing to me that they've agreed to put so much on the table. Now, the question of sort of U.S. Um, participation in this is an interesting one. The two main envoys from South Korea are supposedly on their way to Washington. They may be here today or tomorrow to brief people in the Trump administration about the talks. But things are going forward. Uh, There's going to be a summit meeting next month between Kim Jong-un and Moon Jae-in. 
And I, I think there's a momentum now that's going to be very difficult to stop. And the fact that they've actually put out there the possibility of getting rid of their nuclear weapons is pretty astonishing to me. What do you think about the U.S. capacity to negotiate in uh, in talks? Because the North Korea uh, negotiator who had been there for a while with the U.S., Joseph Yoon, uh, just uh, retired recently. I mean – like last month recently, and uh, the U.S. doesn't have an ambassador to South Korea. Uh, it's it's not exactly stocked up here. No, I'm very concerned. And I've written and, and called for a dream team of diplomats, none of whom are currently in the Trump administration. But there are, you mentioned Robert Gallucci earlier, Jimmy Carter had, had success in the 90s negotiating with North Korea. Wendy Sherman, who did uh, a great job on the Iran nuclear agreement a few years ago for uh, the State Department of uh, President Obama has also had some success in negotiating with North Korea. Leon Siegel, there's a bunch of people from previous administrations. And I would say if Rex Tillerson or whoever in the Trump administration can't do the job, then send other diplomats or even just go. Don't ask Trump's permission. Just go. Now, the thing is, both South Korea and North Korea does want talks with uh, the current government, the current administration. And what I find interesting is a lot of this could be wrapped into a formal peace treaty. Now, this is where people don't have any concept uh, of, this, of this history. But in 1953, there was never a peace treaty at the end of the Korean War. Uh, it, it was a, an armistice that was supposed to be temporary. So ever since then, since 1953, we're technically still at war, which just seems ridiculous. North Korea has wanted a peace treaty, and you could wrap up maybe all of these issues in a comprehensive peace treaty. But then think about that for a minute. A, a, a treaty, if it is an actual legal treaty, for according to our Constitution here in the United States, would require 67 votes in the U.S. Senate. So just getting 67 votes on anything is very difficult given the makeup of the Senate. Uh, the Senate. And then you think, does Trump or his administration even have the patience for that kind of negotiation? So I think there's a real competence question. Could the current administration even do this? And if they can't, they should stand back and let Koreans make peace. This is the Korean Peninsula. It's not Florida. It's not Cape Cod. And I'm not, I'm not giving up on U.S. Uh, competence at diplomacy. I'm just not very confident about it right now. Or maybe we let Moon Jae-in do the leadership. And, and again, I do think it's important, and I think there's a pride factor here of him reclaiming uh, South Korea's sovereignty. Uh, it was interesting that he had to ask Trump to postpone the war exercises earlier this year. It was not his decision, even though the majority of the troops come from South Korea. So there is still an imperial relationship. The U.S. is the big dog, and South Korea is the little dog when it comes to the military. A lot of people don't know that if war would break out, the South Korean forces would actually be under a U.S. general's command, not a South Korean general. That's going to change in a few years. But there are still some you know, imperial vestiges of this relationship here. And right now, you have what I consider to be an incompetent administration and a very comp in this country and a very competent president who really wants to pursue peace in South Korea, and he needs to be uh, allowed to do that. And if the U.S. doesn't, you know, can't support it, I think the U.S. should stay out of the way. But if he comes up, if President Moon of South Korea comes up with a uh, agreement that looks like the Iran nuclear deal in any way, shape, or form, the, the U.S. is going to, the Trump administration anyway, is going to turn up its nose at it. Right. And he's very smart. And he knows that he probably has uh, only so much leeway that he can get ahead of the Trump administration. But now the other factor is the political weakness of Trump himself and 
God knows what's going to happen with the Mueller investigation and now this lawsuit from Stormy Daniels. And, you know, Trump, even if he were a competent president, which he isn't, he's going to be so distracted or already is so distracted. So who do you put your trust in in this current administration? I can't point to anybody that I would say, yes, get on a plane and go to Korea tomorrow and start negotiating. I would put Jimmy Carter on the plane or Wendy Sherman or Leon Siegel or Robert Gallucci or Bill Richardson. They've all had success in the past and uh, North Korea respects them. Now, again, at a certain point, you do need the official current U.S. government to do its job. I don't know that the time for that is right now. I would love to be wrong about this, and we'll see. After these two envoys from South Korea come and brief the administration in the next day or two, they'll probably have a game plan going forward. But I think there's an unstoppable momentum right now. They're not going to be able to cancel the the, uh, summit meeting next month between uh, Moon and Kim. And again, I think a big issue now is in the U.S.'s court in terms of uh, continuing to postpone these massive war exercises, which, of course, North Korea hates and fears. And again, Trump did a good thing in agreeing to postpone them during the Olympic truce. But now now that uh, North Korea has said they will continue a freeze on their nuclear testing and missile testing, it would make sense to say, okay, we're going to continue to put off these massive war games. I'm talking with Kevin Martin. He is president of Peace Action, the country's largest grassroots peace organization. I know you've been active uh, to shift over to something that is maybe related uh, on Yemen and uh, the situation with Saudi Arabia and the United States uh, being uh, the United States helping out in the war in Yemen. Um, What's new on that front? Yes, and partly the way I think it's related is the importance of rebalancing the constitutional authority of Congress in matters of war and peace. According to the Constitution, it's supposed to be only the Congress that can can declare war, but of course that hasn't happened since World War II, and we've had plenty of wars since then, either Congress shirking their responsibility or they pass these authorizations for the use of military force, which then puts it back on the president. So um, Bernie Sanders is one of the lead sponsors, Mike Lee of Utah, who's a Republican, so there is bipartisan support. Dick Durbin there in Illinois is also co-sponsor of SJ Res 54. And they're raising this under the War Powers Act, which goes back to 1973. And again, that was a tussle between Congress at the time and the administration trying to take back some of Congress's authority. They're expecting a vote on this possibly Friday, but probably early next week. And we think we have a chance to win. I wouldn't bet the House on it necessarily. What it would do, it would not stop the massive U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia, unfortunately, which we are in favor of that. My organization, Peace Action, supports that. And we actually did very well on some votes on that last year. What it would do is stop the in-air refueling of Saudi planes that are bombing Yemen. It would stop U.S. uh, intelligence and targeting and some other logistical support for Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia's military is frankly not that competent. And most people think that without this U.S. logistical and intelligence and targeting support, they would not be able to continue this. And even though it's not in the news nearly as much as it should be, the horror in Yemen, this this civil war in Yemen, and of course the intervention by the Saudi-led coalition, is the worst humanitarian crisis on the planet right now. Eight million people at risk of starvation, one million children at risk of cholera. It's just horrifying. And U.S. tax dollars should not be participating at all. And the only reason we would be doing this and supporting Saudi Arabia at all is because of our addiction to oil. And there's going to be some protests, I think, starting next week when... uh, um, 
Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the new new crown prince of Saudi Arabia, doing a tour of the United States. Yep. It may not be great timing for him. There's going to be some big protests when he uh, goes around the country. But we think this vote in the Senate will probably happen before that. Kevin Martin is president of Peace Action. They're the largest peace network in the United States. Thanks a lot for joining us. Good talking with you, Kevin. My pleasure. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about how America treats its teachers. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Teachers in this country take a lot of blame when our education systems produce bad outcomes. But education systems that have good outcomes give their teachers much more support than we get in this country. Linda Darling-Hammond is professor of education at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. She's president and CEO of the Learning Policy Institute. She's written lots of books. Her most recent one is Empowered Education. Thanks for joining us, Linda. Great to be there. You know, we just went through this experience with teachers in West Virginia in the United States where they get paid very poorly and had to go to the wall to get, you know, just some decent pay that offsets their health care and the government threatened to reduce the health care of poor people over the pay. It was kind of a crazy situation. What's going on here? Well, I see the way in which teaching has been increasingly denigrated in this country, and the situation in West Virginia is like that in a number of other states. There are 30 states right now where a teacher who heads a family of four is eligible for government assistance. Their own kids could qualify for free and reduced price lunch. There was an interview with a young teacher in West Virginia who was working two jobs and was on food stamps. Uh, So the pay has gotten very, very low. It's not competitive with that of other college-educated workers. This is very different than what you see in high-performing countries around the world. What are they doing differently? I mean, we've got a system where we break it down into different states and districts, and uh, the the national system doesn't seem to have a lot of input or control. Is that uh, something that's of an issue? Well, big countries tend to have state governments. So Canada is a high-achieving country. So is Australia. They both have state systems. But all of the states in those countries pay teachers well. Uh, They pay teachers about as well as other college graduates. In the U.S., we pay teachers about 30% less than other college graduates. Uh, Now, we have differential salaries. You know, the New England states tend to pay better States in the South and in the West tend to pay worse, so it is some variability. But in general, other countries think of teachers as the profession on which all other professions depend. So they make an investment to be sure that they get both a stable teaching force and a well-qualified teaching force in all of their schools. I know you've written about the idea of what a profession is and what qualifies as a profession, and that um, maybe teachers don't necessarily have all the qualifications in in our society. Well, what makes a profession is an occupation in which you have to do the work in a way that is not routine in order to be successful. As you know, if you're a parent or a grandparent, (laughs) all kids are different. They don't learn in exactly the same way at exactly the same pace. 
And a successful teacher is able to meet the needs of individual children using the knowledge base that they have available. Professions also pledge to use that common knowledge base in the best interests of their clients. Teachers in many places are getting a very strong preparation and are empowered with that knowledge base. But wherever we have shortages, we tend to lower the standards and let people come in without any training. In fact, Arizona just passed a warm body bill, which allows just about anybody to come into teaching and not have to get training even after they've entered. What that means is, of course, the public as a whole starts to lose confidence in the profession as a whole. And that leads to micromanagement, to scripted curriculum, to pacing guides, and a lot of things that drive good people out of the profession. How do other countries do teacher training? Well, let let me talk a minute about Singapore, Finland. Those are the two top achieving countries in the world on the international assessments. In both cases, they bring people in very selectively. Teacher education is entirely free with a stipend or a salary while you're training. There is only one place that trains teachers in in Singapore. There are only eight colleges that train teachers in Finland. They're very high-quality research universities. The teachers all get an excellent free training when they then come into the occupation, which pays them equivalently to engineers. Uh, They also get mentoring from trained mentors when they're in the classroom and ongoing professional learning opportunities. I will say that in Singapore... They think of teaching as the basis of the whole country, and they talk about teachers as nation builders. And the government unilaterally raises the salaries of teachers whenever they start to lag behind those of occupations like engineers. Contrast that to a place like West Virginia, where teachers are having to strike and bargain just to get a living wage. And we see not paying teachers as the goal of um, a lot of government action rather than creating a strong teaching force. Is the United States just not spending enough money here investing in uh, educational systems, investing in teacher pay? Is it is it a money issue? Part of the problem in the U.S. is a money issue, and part of it is that we have the highest poverty rate for children in the industrialized world. And so a lot of our money has to go for things like feeding children in school and um, you know, providing counseling and social work for the fact that they may be um, living in a situation where they've been evicted and don't have a place to live and, you know, all the other um, side effects of a society which at this moment is engaged in the aggressive neglect of its children. So we spend our money ineffectively in that way, but we don't spend enough of our money on instruction and on the ways in which, uh, you know, teachers and other professionals are both compensated and supported with reasonable materials and equipment and class sizes. You'll often hear about teachers having to spend their own money to buy books and materials and equipment in the classroom, and that's where we should be focusing. But we've got to also engage another war on poverty in this country so that we're not having to spend money in schools just to make sure that kids have the food security and supports that they need to be able to learn. I'm talking with Linda Darling-Hammond. She's the author of Empowered Education, about educational systems around the world that are doing a great job. And she's professor of education at the Stanford Graduate School of Education and president and CEO of Learning Policy Institute. 
Uh, one of the things that seems to stand out about our educational system and teachers is that they don't have time for lesson planning and working with other teachers. Uh, we seem to have a, a real deficit here compared to other countries. Yes, U.S. teachers actually teach more hours per week with children and more hours per year than teachers in any other country in the world. We are tied for Chile with respect to the number of hours per year. We have the old factory model in which it was thought that teachers are only working when they are in front of children who kind of are supposed to come before them in a sort of rotating <laughs> schedule that we see in our high schools. And what that means is that teachers don't have the time that others in other countries have to collaborate with each other, to plan lessons together, to polish their lessons, to problem solve around the needs of children, to reach out to parents or kids for extra help, etc. And the job is much more grueling because teachers have to bring home a lot of work, which is grading papers and planning lessons and so on, which they then have to do more in isolation than teachers around the world. The average uh, teacher in the world has about eight hours more per week for all those other things built into their schedule than U.S. teachers. So that also makes it's harder to be a great teacher because you have less opportunity to plan across the curriculum with others. Uh, it also means that you're a much more exhausted teacher. And our stress levels are, are very high in this country for teachers, and this is part of the reason they don't have enough time to really get things in order and get things ready. At the turn of the last century, the modern school was modeled after the factory assembly line that Henry Ford had just invented. So we adopted this kind of assembly line approach to education, which is very stressful uh, and not as successful as it might be if we adopted a more professional way of both uh, organizing teaching and recruiting, preparing, and paying teachers. And this is phenomenally connected to outcomes. Am I not correct that other countries who are offering teachers time to plan and get better training, they see the outcomes in their test scores. It's very correlated. Yes, both the quality of teachers, that is the qualifications they bring with them, their content background, their teacher training, etc., is predictive of student outcomes. Uh, and the amount of collaboration time in schools is associated with stronger student achievement. So it's both what teachers bring with them and what setting they are working in that produces learning for children. We have so much attention on education in this country, but it doesn't seem to be addressing the things you're talking about. We go in with reform efforts and privatizing schools and closing schools and opening schools, but they don't seem to be getting the outcomes. Why do we keep doing those things? We have a very political system in this country. I think that's one of the reasons it's hard to make progress here, because sometimes we do put in place strong, new, innovative programs and ways of educating kids. But then, you know, the school board changes or the governor changes or the superintendent changes, and we go to the other end of the spectrum and do some other kind of reform. So we're in danger of sort of reforming ourselves to death. I even think about innovating our way to failure because we do a lot of innovation. But we don't take the best innovations, spread them across the system, and scale them up. Uh, they kind of come and go like popcorn reform. And that's very wasteful of money. And we were talking about how much money's in the system. 
uh, when you have this kind of start and stop approach, you are throwing a lot of money away. You mentioned the starting of new schools and privatization. There are some wonderful new charter schools that have been created, but chartering as an enterprise has been very chaotic. About uh, 2,000 charters that were started between 2001 and 2015 were closed. That's about 40% of the charters that started in that time. So all of the things that have to be done to start up a school and end a school and so on is time and effort that we're taking away from just investing in a solid um, school system in which every kid has a good school to get to. We've got to kind of get back to the basics, uh, which we know is good teachers, a strong curriculum, engagement of the parents and the community in an education that is increasingly focused on the kind of learning skills that we need for the 21st century. I know that a few years ago, there was a legislation passed called the Every Student Succeeds Act on a federal level. And part of it is to support teacher training and things of that nature. What is going on with that act? The states are all putting together their what they call ESSA plans. Uh, it often goes under the name of ESSA and turning them into the Department of Education for approval. There is a tug of war going on because the idea of the new law was that there would be more flexibility allowed to states. However, the Department of Education has been pretty assertive about not allowing a lot of the flexibility that states have been asking for. But there are real good possibilities to improve education through ESSA. States have the opportunity to think about education more broadly than just test scores, to look at school climate, student opportunities to learn, college and career readiness in some innovative ways. Some states are looking at encouraging bilingualism and college readiness assessments and career-ready pathways that are very innovative. And there's a lot of emphasis in the law on equity, on how to ensure that equal opportunities are available for students across the spectrum. So there's good reason to be hopeful about the future under ESSA, particularly if states are able to uh, undertake the kind of innovation that they have been proposing. Now, does the Trump administration zero out the money for that every year in its budget proposal? They have been zeroing out the money for a couple of portions of ESSA. The Congress has been putting the money back in. They've been zeroing out the money for teacher training and principal training, which, of course, is critically important for any of the other reforms to be successful. And they've zeroed out the money for the programs that would support children's health and mental health and access to advanced coursework. Uh, again, the Congress has been putting that back in every year, and we hope they'll continue to do that. Are you optimistic that the U.S. can learn lessons and make adjustments here? Well, I am optimistic that some states will think of the whole system of education in their states and put the pieces together. Uh, the state is the right unit of change. It's the constitutional owner of education in our system. It's about the same size as a, a country like Finland or Singapore. And there are some places that are doing really thoughtful work and have proposed really strong uh, initiatives in the coming years. And I am hopeful that we will see some real gains in those places. There is a commitment in a number of places to really deal with the inequalities in the country and to make the investments that are needed for the quality of teaching. And I hope those states will be 
role models for all the others. What states are those? Well, I think there's a lot of very important work going on in California, which has a new, very progressive school funding system that gives money based on pupil needs and has been investing in professional learning for uh, teachers and school leaders. There's some new initiatives in New York State that are very promising. Uh, Massachusetts has been a leader for a very long time in this country, and they're engaged in very important work. So is Vermont, New Hampshire. There's quite a lot of energy, and I'm leaving out, I'm sure, some states that are doing important work and that are getting ready to really leverage that work much more innovatively with the new law. Linda Darling-Hammond is professor of education at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. She's the author of the new book, Empowered Education. Thanks a lot for joining us. My pleasure. Coming up after the break, the United Nations, aid agencies, and their sexual abuse and harassment scandals. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The sexual abuse and harassment scandals have hit international NGOs and the United Nations hard. Oxfam saved the children. They've all had scandals. The U.N., of course, has had scandals for years. I'm sure some listeners remember U.N. personnel and trafficked women in Bosnia in the 90s. We're going to talk about NGOs and the U.N. and the sexual harassment scandals with Paula Donovan. She is co-founder and co-director of AIDS Free World and its Code Blue campaign. The Code Blue campaign aims to end impunity for sexual exploitation and abuse by U.N. personnel. Thanks for joining us, Paula Donovan. Hi, Jerome. Pleasure to be here. Tomorrow's International Women's Day. Um, you're someone who worked at the UN for a long time and wrote a position paper in 2006 setting out the rationale for the UN Women's Agency at the United Nations. And we're going through this greater moment where we're looking at this Me Too scandal popping up in every facet of our lives. What do you think is going on here? I think that it's essentially a betrayal of the public's trust in the United Nations and in the aid agencies that operate independently and privately. They certainly say all the right things, and they're espousing the principles and the uh, the goals that we um, that many of us share in common. But behind closed doors, when it comes to managing their own personnel and dealing with scandals that are introduced into countries and are prevalent among their own personnel in the workplace, they don't practice what they preach. And it's just doubly shocking when you find that organizations that are designed to uphold, among other things, equality between women and men and people's human rights and justice and dignity and so forth are the perpetrators of these abuses. It's especially shocking and unnerving. It seems like the thing that aid agencies have in common with everybody else involved in these scandals is accountability is hard to get. And when you get some accountability, it's it seems like no agency or institution really does it right or knows what to do. 
that's right. And and largely, I think it's a function of institutions, organizations, companies, whatever they are, having a conflict of interest. So on the one hand, you want to protect your entity, whatever that might be, from any sort of um, uh, damage to its reputation. On the other hand, you feel that you do have an obligation to at least look into and try to address wrongdoing by the very people that you allegedly vetted and hired and then dispersed to carry out whatever your mission, mandate, purpose is in the in an organization. So again, it's it's different for NPR, for the entertainment industry, the tech industry. These are all entities that have their own purpose in life um, and in the world, but uh, but they don't take the high moral ground and tell the world that they exist primarily and uh, exclusively for the purpose of ensuring that uh, that human beings treat one another with respect and dignity and that social justice can prevail around the world. And that's what's so terribly disturbing about uh, about this most recent spate of sexual exploitation, abuse, sexual harassment, and so forth, and and the realization that it has, as you said, been going on um, certainly in the United Nations system for decades. Is part of the problem the UN missions are out there in places where people are extremely vulnerable at times, and the power equation is enormous? It's a situation far from home. It seems like an unaccountable space. Yes, you're absolutely right. Yeah, the power dynamics are are um, absolutely outrageous when you when you think of uh, people who are relying on. Let's take the instance of the United Nations. They're they're relying on this world body to ensure that when they are in desperate straits, or even if they're just uh, facing the challenges of development and human rights, that any any developing country might encounter. Um, they rely on these institutions to send people who are imbued with the principles of the organization. And then when those people arrive in countries, there is a tendency to sort of hunker down and create a little expatriate community among themselves. So the aid workers, the humanitarian workers, the uh, the people who work for the United Nations arrive as a kind of foreign entity within a country and interact among themselves. Many of them don't even speak the language of the country where they're posted. And it creates a sort of us-them relationship where the us, if it's the United Nations and these aid agencies, are um, are far wealthier. They have the security of uh, of regular jobs. They have all sorts of protections uh, for themselves and their families. If it's a family duty station, and uh, and they're perceived as people with authority because they do have authority, and and they have the kind of power that you can exert over people within an organization if you're a senior official and externally if you have power over whether or not people will eat, whether or not they'll have shelter, clean water, and access to things like justice and law enforcement. Within that kind of universe, uh, the UN people have something that says we will only be investigated by ourselves. We don't get investigated by the place where we're at. That's right. So, so United Nations immunity is a really complicated concept. But um, to boil it down to the basics, it's the it's the United Nations entity itself, the world body, that has immunity from legal process. And the whole purpose of that, which was um, which was first set up through a convention in 1946, 
was to ensure that when people who are officials of the United Nations are traveling in and among and between countries, that they won't be retaliated against by a hostile government that is angry about a decision that was made by the world body collectively. So in order to protect uh, protect the individuals from being, say, pulled over on a specious claim of, uh, you know, running a red light and uh, in a foreign country um, because the government is angry and wants to retaliate against, uh, let's say, a Security Council resolution, then the uh, this um, concept of immunity for the institution, absolute immunity for the institution – and the uh, the protection against being dragged into courts in different countries um, is in place and very important. What that doesn't do, although it has been uh, been manipulated and misused to um, to extend this far, what it doesn't do and never should do is uh, is protect people who are working for the United Nations from any kind of uh, accountability or um, investigation or prosecution when they are justifiably accused of a crime. I'm talking with Paula Donovan. She's co-founder of the Code Blue campaign, and it aims to end impunity for sexual exploitation and abuse by U.N. personnel. One of the things your organization suggests would help remedy this situation is a special court mechanism. How would that fit in here? So in peacekeeping countries, and uh, and there are just over a dozen that uh, are engaged in active conflicts, the, the structures have pretty much fallen apart. Um, the governments come to the United Nations and ask for a peacekeeping mission, uh, the help of their fellow member states of the United Nations, because their uh, their law enforcement and, and military simply can't handle what's going on within their borders. Um, when that happens and peacekeeping missions are set up, they're made up both of military and non-military personnel who are, who are uh, posted there by the United Nations in the peacekeeping country. When a, an international civil servant, that is a non-military person who's working for the United Nations in, let's just say, the Central African Republic, um, is accused of criminal activity – then it's up to the United Nations to first determine whether or not the immunity that I just referred to applies in this case. So was this uh, was this arrest or is this uh, report of a crime of a sexual nature, let's say a report of rape, is this uh, simply made up or is there substance to it and is there – can you make a, a determination on the face of it – that the person who's reporting this crime is probably telling the truth. It's possible that it may have happened and the people or person that um, she's accusing uh, is likely to uh, to have committed the crime or may have committed the crime. So that's what the United Nations is mandated to do, to establish whether or not immunity applies in this case if it is a uh, – if there's evidence of uh, – if there's enough evidence just on the face of things to determine that a crime may have been committed. They're then supposed to re- refer of credible cases immediately to the national authorities to How often does that kind of thing happen? Does, do people, do, does the United Nations usually protect their own? Because there's a lot of times that it seems like they've protected their own. 
Exactly. So what they tend to do is think we can't throw our guys to the wolves. We can't have them go through a, um, an investig- a police investigation and a court process in a country that's on its knees, essentially, and the structures aren't working. So what they do instead, instead of referring them for uh, for criminal prosecution, instead they they say we're simply going to deal with this as an administrative matter. So they treat the accused as though he had broken the rules of the United Nations rather than the law. And they go go through an internal administrative investigation that simply determines whether or not the person should still continue to work at the United Nations. And those investigators have no legal authority to truly punish the person other than, at worst, taking the person's job away from them. And that's why we're proposing a special court mechanism in these countries, in these particular countries, so that there isn't a double standard where people who work for the United Nations and are accused of things as egregious as rape can simply be treated as though they had broken the rules of their employer rather than facing true justice. So the special court mechanism would um, would essentially create an independent uh, body that would not necessarily want to protect UN personnel. That's right, because the uh, the as it stands now, the effectively the jury, the, the police, the judge, the jury, the prosecution, the defense, um, they are all employees of the United Nations organization. And what should happen is that the member states of the United Nations should create this external independent body so that people are placed in those positions to receive claims and to investigate them thoroughly and to prosecute them where necessary and to to mete out justice um, without having the conflict of interest that they are also uh, fellow employees, colleagues of uh, of the accused or the accuser or both. You know, I before we let you go, I wanted to say something more about um, the United Nations system more broadly rather than we're talking kind of about people in the field and peacekeepers and things of that nature. But uh, mm-hmm. the whole UN system seems to have issues. And I was on your Code Blue website last night and uh, reading about Rude Lubbers, who I had mm-hmm. forgotten about. He was mm-hmm. a former prime minister in the Netherlands, and he was the head of the UN uh, refugee agency, and he was uh, accused of inappropriate behavior, and Kofi Annan backed him for a while. That's right. That's right. And so Rude Lubbers was uh, was allowed to make a graceful exit um, with his dignity intact, despite the, uh, despite the media reports. And what you pointed out at the beginning, uh, Jerome, is absolutely true, that, that we do tend to forget these things. So his... Uh, so he left the United Nations probably 13 years ago, and um, Antonio Guterres took over as uh, as the head of uh, the High Commission for Refugees at that time. And now, the now with Guterres as the Secretary General, one would think that when uh, when the latest cases of sexual exploitation, sexual abuse, uh, sexual harassment within the workplace arise, that Mr. Guterres was facing it for the first time. When in reality, the question should that should be asked is, when you left politics, Mr. Guterres, and took over as the head of UNHCR, and for the 10 years that followed when you were the High Commissioner for Refugees, which, by the way, has the highest rates of uh, 
reports of sexual exploitation and abuse by its its non-military personnel against the refugee populations that it's mandated to serve, the question has to be, what did you do during those 10 years, and how is what you're proposing now any different? And I think the answer is the conflict of interest remains. These cases are all still being dealt with internally so that people who are senior officials and and uh, managers of the accused are put in the position of simply uh, stating and restating over and over again, we have zero tolerance, we're dealing with it internally, we're investigating, we will make sure that justice is served. And justice basically looks like a dignified exit for, for perpetrators across the system decade after decade. Paula Donovan is co-founder and co-director of AIDS Free World and its Code Blue campaign. The Code Blue campaign aims to end impunity for sexual exploitation and abuse by U.N. personnel. Paula, thanks a lot for joining us. Thank you, Drew. Tomorrow on Worldview, hope you can join us, and we'll be talking about International Women's Day. It's tomorrow. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.